from our study in the book of Revelation for this morning at least. Uh, however, I, there are a couple of verses in Revelation that we can read. I, I hadn't chosen them for our text, but it'd probably be a good idea to look at them because they, they do have something to do with what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so if you want to, you could, uh, I'd appreciate it if you would take your Bibles and turn to the first chapter of the book of Revelation. And I would like to read just one verse, and that's verse 18. And people who are unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, amazingly, are, are unaware that a lot of the uh, Scripture pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ is written in the first person. In other words, uh, Jesus Christ is quoted a lot in the Bible. If you really want to know uh, about him, the Bible is your best information source to find out because he conveyed many of his thoughts directly in his own words, and they're just, they're just recorded. They're, they're quotes. And uh, the difference between the Bible and any other uh, reading material is uh, that while you may have doubts about what you read elsewhere, you never need to have doubts about what you read in the Bible. It's all accurately recorded, and it's true. The part that we're reading here, which is our Lord speaking in the first person, he just simply says, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Now let's pray. Our Father, our God which art in heaven, we come to you this morning thanking you for the occasion of our gathering for this church, for each one who is here. And I pray, Holy Father, that Jesus Christ will be held up here this morning and that he will be magnified and have glory. We thank you for the power of his life, for the very force of his being, and for his finished, accomplished, sacrificial work at Calvary and his subsequent resurrection in order that he would save his people from their sins. So I pray, Lord, that conviction of sin will be had among us and worship of Christ in spirit and in truth will be exercised here. I pray in his name, amen. I'd like to speak to you this morning about the person of Jesus Christ, not so much his character. Uh, the Bible is replete with the description of his character. And certainly uh, it would be worthwhile for us to know a good deal about his character, but that's really not where we're going to emphasize uh, or take our efforts this morning. I want to talk to you about, about his life. Uh, today is is Easter Sunday, and most of Christianity observes it as a special and particular day. Uh, and I'm sure that those of you who are visiting here have not been here before on any Easter Sunday will notice the absence of, of decor that is so commonly uh, seen in, in most Christian churches on Easter Sunday. There's a reason for that. Uh, the primary reason for it is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an eternal fact. The text that we read, our Lord says, I am alive forevermore. 
And so what we need to understand is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, while it is a singular historical event, it is without a doubt, always has been and always will be, an eternal event. And we're talking about eternal life when we talk about the life of Christ. We need to, I suppose, for purposes of identification and maybe clarification in our own minds, understand a little bit about how it is that God worked this great miracle of the person of Christ. You may remember in the very early part of the Gospel of Matthew, first chapter, I think, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, a virgin, was pregnant. And the angel Gabriel came to her, or came to Joseph, and revealed to Joseph that his wife was pregnant, and how she became pregnant, and what it was, who it was that she was bearing in her womb. And the thing that is outstanding about what Gabriel said to Joseph at that time, those of you who are familiar will know this, those of you who aren't will be enlightened. He said, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. His name is Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel becomes key to everything else that follows in the entire New Testament. Emmanuel is the Hebrew name, which means God is with us. The claim that Christians have made for 2,000 years have, about Jesus Christ is a consistent claim, and that is that Jesus Christ is God. And what we have then is a miracle of God the Son taking on human form in order to accomplish a specific mission. The birth of Christ, the incarnation of God, if you will, that is God becoming flesh, was no coincidence or accident of history. It was by God's design. And what is it that he designed to do? What he designed to do was what Gabriel said he had come to do, he was born to do, and he would do and that is to save his people from their sins. So the issue is this. The issue is sin and Savior. Now until Christ, how it is that God would accomplish that was cloudy. It was couched in, in prophetic terms. It was, it was veiled over with obscure utterances. There were the hints. Uh, there were the pictures, the types in the scriptures, but they were all veiled. And, and Jesus Christ is the true revelation. It is, he is the true apocalypsis, the, the unveiling of all of these obscure statements that surrounded how it would be that God would save his people from their sins. It's a big issue. It, when, when you stop to consider that that when we're speaking in terms, in eternal terms, we're talking of our church who is dying. I talked to her on the phone last night, and, and, and there's no question that, that probably she won't see the end of this month. But, but the point is that her leaving this life is no unique experience to humankind. We're all going to do it. And I had many a conversation with her and other folks in, who, were, who were terminally ill. 
and, and, and have said this, made this statement over and over again. Mary, when she would say, I, I don't know if I'll live till tomorrow, I say to her, neither do I know if I will live till tomorrow. All any of us are given, all that we have, guaranteed, is our next breath. We, we don't, and, and even that will stop, we, none of us know if we have it tomorrow. And that's why the issue of Jesus Christ being the Savior of his people coming to save them from their sins becomes such an important issue because death is the reality for all of us. It doesn't matter whether you're 18 or 20 or 50 or 90. The end result of all of those varying ages is that at some point in the ticks of time, you will cease to live on this earth. All of us. None of us shall escape it. So when we speak of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we're talking about a, 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 a payment for sin and a hope for those for whom the sins have been paid that is beyond our lifetime. You want to live forever? Who doesn't? We all like to live forever. Those Spaniards came over and, and ravaged, went through Florida looking for the fountain of youth so they could live forever. It's always been the hope of man to live forever. Socrates, a well-known Greek philosopher, 400 years before Christ, after he had drinking the poison hemlock, laid down to die. Several of his friends with him. And his friends, his followers really, are reported to have said to him, if we die, shall we live again? And Socrates is reported to have said, I hope so, but no man can know. In the life of Christ, a person can know. That's why his resurrection becomes vital. It's not the fact that he conquered death, per se, the historical fact that's important. It's what his victory over the grave has accomplished for his people that is important. It's important because even as we sang that song, Are You Ready?, can you still look up when the sod closes around you? We sing a hymn like that. The only answer that could possibly be a hopeful answer comes from those who know the risen Christ. Still, we have to know the history, I suppose. And so this baby was born and grew into manhood, and his name was Jesus. He was a Galilean. He was from Nazareth. The fact of the historic existence of Jesus Christ is vitally important. Jesus was no mere spirit emanating from outer space and floating about to influence people. Jesus took on the form that we have, a historical person, just as you are a historical person. When you depart this life, you will leave behind a historical record. You all have records. Anybody in this room doesn't have a social security number? Probably not. So you have records. You are a historical person. 
You have a birth date recorded somewhere. You are a historical person. You will accomplish or have accomplished things in your lifetime which will influence others and probably you will leave a legacy behind you once you leave this life, either in the form of children, well-trained or otherwise, or friends or fortunes or, or, or whatever, because you are a historical person. Jesus Christ is a historical person. Probably I could use the past tense. In this case, Jesus was a historical person because the Christ is an eternal person. The historical Christ, the historical Jesus, we all know, experienced a death, as we all shall experience. His death was unique in that the circumstances which surrounded it never occurred before and have not been duplicated since. Think about this. Here's a man who is God. He displayed he is God. He performed uh, deeds against which no man could argue. The, the, the great argument against Jesus Christ during his lifetime was that he was too much like God and therefore too much of a threat to those who did not wish to have their lives and the lifestyles that they lived disturbed by the influence of a person as unique as he was, making the claims that he made doing the things which he did. Now think, think on. He even raised a person from the dead. This was no near-death experience that we read about so often today. This was a man who was dead. Four days dead. So dead that the description of his grave was that he already was decaying. And when the Lord Jesus Christ called him forth from the dead, he came. Well, where was he after he had died? And what was he doing? And don't you wish that you could have sat at his feet and ask him a hundred thousand questions about what was it like after you died? Where did you go? Who did you see? What did you see? Now, the scripture is silent about that. But it isn't silent about the religious leaders of the day who observed this great miracle that only God could perform. They wanted to kill him, this man, this Lazarus. Destroy the evidence. Get rid of the facts. It was, as so, it was the same thing with Jesus Christ. The very same group of men wanted to destroy the evidence of God among them. Get rid of the facts. Remove him from the scene. So his death was unique. Not because there was a conspiracy to kill him or to frame him and try him. That isn't what made his death unique. Not even that he was abandoned by his friends and only, only accompanied by several women. It wasn't even that. What was unique about his death was that one, in human de by human definition, he's, he didn't deserve to die. And two, 
He was a good and perfect man, and yet, at his death, he was abandoned by God. That's what made his death unique. Those who are in Christ, who trust Christ, who know Christ, whose sins have been covered by the blood of Christ, who have lived their lives in the power of his resurrection, will never, never die the kind of death he died. He has promised, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Even the famous 23rd Psalm says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. No one will ever need die who is in Christ, die abandoned of God, ever. That's the great hope. That's the great human perspective for a Christian. Since we all are facing the reality of death at some point in our lives or at the end of our lives and at varying times and spaces, then what becomes terribly important is how we die and the result of our death. I mean, if any of you in this room can guarantee that beyond the grave there is nothing but oblivion, I would like you to prove it to me or, or uh, if anyone here can argue that there is no such place as heaven or hell, then demonstrate that to me. The point is that there is a character, a historic, a historic character named Jesus of Galilee, who was God, who, who is God, who was God in human flesh, who laid down his life to guarantee, to convince those who would trust him for their salvation, that there really is a heaven, and that there really is a hell, and there really is, after the grave, another place. For those in Christ, a better place. For those not, a worse place. I would like you to turn to the book of Acts, please, the second chapter, if you would. We'll read just verses 22, 23, and 24. This is Peter preaching a sermon. Notably, probably the first public sermon ever preached by, uh, by a member of a New Testament church. It was a glorious day because great power had come upon the church at Jerusalem. There were only 120 members in that church. But the size of its membership was not nearly as important as the size of its power. And the, the power that, that that church was endued with on that particular day uh, was never duplicated before, never done before, and has not been duplicated since. The need to be, for we have the evidence of that power. But Peter is preaching, and he says, You men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know. Him being determined by the, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. 
or beholden of it, as my translation reads. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus physically was raised from the dead? Well, it does mean that. Is that all it means? Most assuredly, it is not all it means. It is not simply the fact of his resurrection upon which we fix our hope. We need to know the fact. It must be a fact. The reality of it must be there. But it is his resurrection or his life upon which we fix our hope. It is the power of the life of Christ from which we derive our power. We get it from no other source but from the power of his life. And his life has power because he triumphed over death. The grave could not hold him. The grave spit him out. There is no way that the grave and death would hold the eternal God. And I want you to know that because the grave couldn't hold him and wouldn't hold him, if you are in Christ Jesus, it is a truth for you as well. The grave cannot hold you and will not hold you. That your hope in resurrection is as sure and as certain as was his resurrection itself. In the book of Romans, when we have a baptismal service, we read the portion of scripture that deals with being dead, buried, and raised in the likeness of a new creation in Christ. And we say that the water is a picture of the grave, and the candidate being immersed under the water is a picture of that candidate's identification with being buried with Christ, so that the old person, the person that you were, until that time that you received Christ is dead. And coming up out of the water is significant of being raised together with Christ. Alive and new. It's not simply being made alive in the same manner and mode that you were before. It's alive and new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things are gone. All things have become new power to be a new creation in Christ derives from the power of his life. He is alive. He is alive at this very moment. He has triumphed over death. And therefore, we have power. And I think probably the significant portion of scripture that deals with this truth is found in the book of Colossians, and this will be the last place I will ask you to turn. So turn to the third chapter of Colossians, if you will, please. First four verses. You'll notice how the resurrection of Christ, the living Christ, is, is threaded through throughout the New Testament, but here it is certainly very obvious. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are hid, you are dead, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. And if you were ever going to, to box out or underline a phrase in the Bible, you should box out and underline that sentence. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Christ is our life. Being a Christian is not simply a matter of making a verbal confession that you are one. Being a Christian is a whole life. Christ becomes one's life. And while it is true that through the frailty of our own flesh, we oftentimes are very unlike Christ, it is equally true that it is not our permanent condition for the power that we derive for our lives comes from Christ. That's why all of these mysterious expressions are used in the scriptures, things like being born again, or having life from above, or being risen with Christ, or having Christ as our life. All of those expressions are stated simply because there is a an impelling event that has occurred unto those who are trusting Christ. It's impelling and it's compelling. It impels them into the life of Christ and compels them to live his life. The scriptures elsewhere say, for those who are in that condition, you are not your own but you are bought with a price. You do not own yourselves. You are owned by him. And since you are owned by him and your life comes from him, your hope lies in him. The Apostle Paul, when he was preaching to a, a large group of Greek philosophers, unbelievers really, was speaking about their physiognomy. Physiologically, he said, when he spoke of God, he said, well, in God, we live and move and have our being. That is an absolutely accurate statement for those who are in Christ. In Christ, we live and move and have our being. Without him, we can do nothing. With him, we can do all things. And that's the promise of his resurrection. Not the fact that he rose, which is a fact. It's a historical fact. But the fact, the overriding fact is that he lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And as that song goes that we sometimes sing, he walks with me, he talks with me, the long life's narrow way, he lives. He lives. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ lives. <laughs>